0: Hello, hey, how are you? Welcome to The Other People Show. My name is Brad Listey, and I am in Los Angeles, California. It's good to be with you. I hope you're okay out there. I hope you're holding up in 2023, keeping it together somehow. Today on the program, my guest is Matthew Salesis, author of a new novel called The Sense of Wonder. I was just talking to somebody
1: and they were saying, they were they had been talking to like a showrunner for a Muslim American show and, and the showrunner was saying, I just want to be able to fail and still get money thrown at me just like any white showrunner would. And I right, like just want to be able to fail. I, I think there's something to that for sure. It's It's hard to fail when you have so few chances because each failure seems like it's going to end everything. You always have this sense, I think, sometimes living as somebody so disempowered that, like, any fuck-up you make is going to bring your whole life crashing down.
0: Okay, that was Matthew Salasis. His new novel is called The Sense of Wonder. It is available now from Little Brown. The Sense of Wonder is a propulsive, beautifully constructed novel about an Asian-American basketball star who is loosely modeled on the actual Asian American basketball star Jeremy Lynn, who you may remember rose to prominence in the NBA back in 2012 with the New York Knicks. The Sense of Wonder is a novel about identity, racial and cultural politics. It's a novel about relationships romantic relationships, friendships, sibling relationships, professional and familial relationships. It's about how people see themselves and how they often see themselves through the eyes of others. All of this drama is set against the backdrop of the K-drama, the Korean drama, which is a tradition in South Korean entertainment, television entertainment that Matthew Salis is, uses to great effect in this book to explain and accentuate and undergird the story that he is telling about Wan Lee, the Asian American basketball star at the heart of his novel, as well as about the other characters involved, each of whom is fighting his or her own battles related to identity and relationships and professional standing. Both in the United States of America and also in South Korea. I really enjoyed it. I loved reading The Sense of Wonder, which clocks in at about 230 pages, I think. It's a novel that really moves, and for a book that's about sports, at least in part, I think you would sort of hope that would be the case. And you know, it's just one of those books where I feel like there's no wasted motion. You've probably heard me say this before. If you've listened to the show for any number of weeks, I have great admiration for books that feel this way. Everything in the sense of wonder feels like it is in its right place. And I'm just really pleased to have Matthew Salas back here on the other people podcast for, I believe the third time. I think that's right. That conversation is coming up in just a couple of minutes. Today's episode is brought to you by William Morrow, publisher of the novel, The Thing in the Snow by Sean Adams. The Thing in the Snow is a psychological thriller. It's a deadpan satire. It's funny. It's thought provoking. It's a little bit scary. It's disconcerting. It's disorienting. I read it just a bit ago. I had Sean Adams on this show just a couple of weeks ago, I believe. And The Thing in the Snow is the January book club pick. It's a good book for this season, right? The Thing in the Snow. Read it in the winter. Do you see how that works? It's by Sean Adams. It's available now from William Morrow. The Other People podcast is offered freely. There are no paywalls for this podcast. The entire archive is made available to listeners free of charge. So here's the deal. I'm I'm hoping that you will support the show. I'm counting on regular listeners to support the show, to help keep it going. You can do that for as little as $1 a month. I've tried to make it as easy as possible to support this show if you like this show. I recognize that there are different income levels out there. I know there are a million subscriptions and all that. I'm sensitive to that. So I've tried to make it a no-brainer. You can support the Other People podcast over at patreon.com slash pod drop a dollar in the hat once a month, $3, $5, $10, 15, 20, whatever you can swing. And as you move up the scale, you can get merch, a t-shirt, a tote bag, a book club subscription, a coffee mug, all that kind of stuff over at patreon.com/otherpplpod. I do a weekly email newsletter, it's free. If you want to sign up for that, go to otherppl.com or bradlisty.com. It's the same newsletter in either place. If you would be so kind, I would appreciate it if you would rate and review this show wherever you listen. So if you listen at Apple Podcasts or Spotify or Stitcher, whatever it is, if it's possible to rate and review the show, please do that. It helps the show find new listeners. The Other People podcast is now available on video. Did you know that? Did you know that you can watch this interview? You can watch my conversation with Matthew Salesis over on the Other People YouTube channel go over to YouTube, search for the show by name, Other PPL. And when you find the Other People YouTube channel, hit the subscribe button. It's free. You can also watch highlights. If you want to watch the highlights, if you're, you know, somebody who likes watching clips, like video clips from the show, you can do that on TikTok. I'm posting highlights over there on TikTok. I'm also posting them on Instagram. The Other People podcast has an Instagram feed. It is also on Twitter. @otherppl. So. We are well covered in the social media universe. Wherever you are, find the show, follow it, say hello. If you would like to email me, the address for the program is letters at otherppl.com. Letters at otherppl.com. Give me some feedback. Tell me what you think. Tell me a story, whatever it happens to be. Last but not least, I have a novel out. Did you know that? I wrote a novel. I published a novel. It came out last year in May. It is called Be Brief and Tell Them Everything. It is available right now in trade paperback, ebook, and audiobook editions. I narrate the audiobook. So if you would like to read my novel, it's a work of autofiction. It's all about me, my life, what I'm going through, what I've been through, how I'm thinking about things, all of that stuff. So, if you want to read it again, it's called Be Brief and Tell Them Everything. Okay, so Matthew Salisys is the guest today. He is the author of the national bestseller Craft in the Real World. He was a 2021 finalist for the Penn Faulkner Award for fiction for his novel entitled Disappear, Doppelganger, Disappear. He has also written two other novels. Matthew Salisys. Uh, is adopted. He's from Korea originally, and he has written about adoption, race, and Asian American masculinity in the Best American Essays of 2020. Uh, he has written about it for NPR's Code Switch, the New York Times blog Motherload, and The Guardian among other outlets. BuzzFeed has named him one of 32 essential Asian American writers at work today. He now lives in New York City where he is an assistant professor of writing at Columbia University. So great to have Matthew Salasis back on this show to get to catch up with him and hear how he's doing as he celebrates his new teaching job in New York City and the publication of this wonderful new novel. Here he is, ladies and gentlemen. This is Matthew Salasis, and his new book, one more time, is called The Sense of Wonder.
1: So I actually wrote the book in two pretty separate parts, or the first draft in two separate parts, you know, I I jotted down like a one or two page outline, maybe like 2013, not that long after Linsanity, just thinking about those three characters, Juan and Robert and uh, and Powerball. So well, uh, Okay, but let's yeah, start, yeah, wanna...
0: what is Linsanity? Because people listening might be going, what, they don't even know. <laughs> oh
1: yeah, it's been a long time now, right? It's like 11 years. So Sanity was what they called it when the first Asian American and still only Asian American basketball star Jeremy Lin went on this like six game winning streak in his first six starts. So he came off the bench, had like a 20 point game. The Knicks won for the first time in like two weeks. They were doing terribly. Everybody was injured. Carmel Anthony wasn't playing. And Lin was like the fourth point guard off the bench. So he was never playing. And Suddenly, like a couple of the point guards got injured or something. One, I think, got suspended, and then he, he got into the game and they won. And so he started the next game and he went off for like 20 something and uh, really dominated the game and uh, they won again. And it just kept happening. Right. And every time it was like, can this possibly happen again? And it, it just kept happening, kept happening, and kept happening. Scored like 36 on Kobe in LA. It hit the game winner. It was really this amazing time. I, you know, I grew up wanting to be an NBA basketball player, and so for me personally, it felt like this time of great possibility. Right? There's that like Kevin Garnett quote where he wins the title? And I don't know if you're a basketball fan, but when he won it, he, he like screams into the air. Anything is possible. Oh right, right. I've seen, the, I've seen, I've seen this
0: clip. It's like yeah. a, it's like a meme now, right?
1: Yeah, yeah, probably
0: right. Uh,
1: so. That's how it fell, I think, during Linsanity for me. And then he finally lost, uh, and ESPN ran this, like, racist headline the next day. Um, There were all these tweets, you know, disparaging him and calling him a fluke. And and suddenly, like, you know, it's like the whole rug got pulled out from under the whole thing. And uh, it was just very disappointing, but also, like, something that was totally expected, but... I was just, I think a lot of people were just hoping it wouldn't happen. And soon after that, Lin got injured, and uh, then like was trying to resign, but the team had this weird thing where they're like telling him, in order to get market value, he should start looking elsewhere and get an offer from elsewhere, and they could match it. Right. So, he, so he did this, even though he just wanted to stay with the Knicks, and uh, he got this huge offer from Houston. That would put New York over its salary cap and cost them a lot of money. And so they decided they weren't going to match it. and And he couldn't come back to New York. and at that point, you know, he joined a system that wasn't really right for him, and it all just kind of fell apart a little bit.
0: I want to stop you because I think like the interesting parallel, which you sort of touched on in the beginning is the emotional experience of this for you. as a Korean American, uh, adoptee, who grew up like playing basketball, loving basketball, dreaming of being an NBA star? I don't know how tall you are. I don't. I mean, was there ever was, <laughs> there, was there ever a chance? Was there any hope or no?
1: <laughs> no, not really. I was I've uh, just under six foot, but
0: okay, yeah, me too. Know. I had like I and I grew up in Indiana. I couldn't even make my high school team. You know, like it was uh, it was competitive and like, I, but I could play a little bit. I could shoot, you know, but I was never athletic enough to really make a make any noise. So when Jeremy Lin has this like meteoric ascent and sudden arrival and it wasn't like, I mean, as, as I recall it, maybe it's different, but like, it was like, it was truly like he came from out of nowhere. Like, I don't recall there being like a buildup. It was just like, suddenly he was there, he was on the court and he was great.
1: <laughs> yeah. 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 I mean, there was, I think if you were kind of, if you were an Asian American following basketball, you probably knew who he was, right? I knew who he was. He was kind of big on YouTube and they were, Things happening. There was already a documentary being made about him, and then it kind of turned into a insanity doc when he went off like that. Um, you know, he had played for Harvard, been all Ivy for like two or three years, and you know, outscored the opposing guard by quite a bit in the NCAA tournament. But it was Harvard, so they still like went out pretty early, right? And then he had. There were these stories about how he had play, outplayed John Wall in the summer league, but he had been completely undrafted. So he spent, you know, the seasons on the bench, I think maybe two seasons on the bench. And then by the time he was playing, it was like, yeah, nobody was paying any attention to him at all.
0: But he made the league as a street free agent. Yeah. mm -hmm. Wow. That's hard to do.
1: Yeah. I mean, he had game, All right? Like it was pretty obvious once he started playing.
0: Right. Okay. And so this was what, 2011, you said?
1: 2012.
0: 2012. Okay. And so you kind of that kind of frames it in terms of like the culture and the politics like 2012 was like peak obama right it was like he was reelected this was pre covid pre trump pre insanity not to be confused <laughs> with, not to be confused with Linsanity. Uh, but i'm you know there was like i think as you touched on like an experience for you emotionally and relationally when it comes to this country and your experience of it It was a moment of true optimism for you, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Brief, brief, but true.
1: Definitely, yes. I felt very optimistic about the country, for sure.
0: In the sense that maybe things have changed and shifted in a real way, and now this is possible, and we'll see more of this.
1: Right, and then it all fell apart.
0: (laughs) You know, it's interesting to me that in a league... That is dominated by people of color, at least at the level of the the athletes. That the racism towards an Asian American player would be so pronounced and so immediate, like that headline in uh, ESPN was that the chink in the armor headline? Mm-hmm, yeah, it's, it's like so crass. Like, how did that ever get past an editor? You know what I'm saying? Like, that's amazing. Yeah, uh, I'm
1: a, you know, it's usually the editors, right, who make the titles, so.
0: Right, right, right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, there you go, there you go. But I mean, like, wow, you know, it's just like, dude, like, uh, I know they're not even trying to be, like, sly about it. It's just, like, brazen and uh, ugly. And so, I don't know. Like, I guess this book really does a nice job of drawing into focus the racial dynamics as they exist for Asian Americans in relation not only to uh, white people in white culture, but also African American culture. There's tension there as well. Absolutely. And the kinds of challenges like racial challenges that Asian Americans face, uh, they're their own thing independent and apart from maybe the challenges that say African Americans might face. Um, so this book does a really nice job of drawing that. And it's the kind of thing too, I think that in the culture, maybe doesn't get talked about quite as much, like as the kinds of, uh, you know, the racial tensions felt, you know, and difficulties felt by African-Americans. Do you know what I'm saying? Like- yeah,
1: man, it's a, like a black and white country for sure. When usually when people talk about racism, at least. I remember I, for a while I was uh, working at the Harvard Kennedy School, which is like the school of government for Harvard. And uh, I was organizing this seminar series on inequality. We had these... You know famous within their field speakers come every week and give this talk about different kinds of inequality yeah like asian-americans never showed up really and i remember sitting with this like the one asian-american student being like like are we like they're never going to talk about us and he's like oh yeah yeah yeah. asian-americans they don't exist in sociology (laughs) and all we could do is joke about it really
0: but why do you think that is
1: I mean, the inequality is so stark, right? Between white folks and black folks. And that's like, you got to start there probably uh, and the country's kind of built on that inequality and then the other groups are larger and then Asian Americans have this weird place within it because there's so many different ethnic groups and some are like very high performing and some are the lowest economic, on, you know, rung on the ladder. And so it's very hard to talk about Asian Americans as a group because of that like extreme difference and diversity.
0: So Jeremy Lin has this incredible rise and then subsequent fall in the NBA. You start like right away, pretty much start to think of it as a possible narrative uh, for your work and you jot down this outline. And then now we're, you know, this is 2013, right? So now you fast forward to 2022 or 2023, and the book is coming out. There's a decade in between.
1: Between the idea, yeah. So 2014, maybe, I was in a PhD program at University of Houston, and I was taking this novel class with Robert Boswell, this pretty amazing teacher, just seemed like a guy who's only thinking about fiction all the time. (laughs) And so this class was, we were reading four novels, but all the beginnings together, and then we wrote all the middles together and read all the endings together. And I teach a kind of version of this now. And he was giving us these prompts. Each of the novels was in kind of a different form. Uh, and, and we had to write four different beginnings to the same novel, four different middles to the same novel, and four different endings to the same novel. It's a really fun class. And, and Bob's would write these prompts that were like 13 pages long. You know, and we were supposed to write five pages. (laughs) Like the prompts were enormous um, and they just had so many different ways you could go off with them. And so I wrote maybe 70 something pages about one story just using these prompts, you know. And so at the end of it, I had a beginning, middle and end to a novel possibly. I remember asking Buzz like, okay, so like now what do I do, right? Like there's no more prompts, you gotta like give me the prompts for the in between stuff. Yeah, right. Uh, and he was like, you know, just connect, connect the three parts. I remember thinking, like, uh, sounds like no fun at all, <laughs> you know, <laughs> right? Like, I just wrote the medius parts, and I don't really want to just write filler in the middle to connect them. So I put it aside, maybe like 2016 or something, 2017. My my wife was diagnosed with cancer right at the beginning of 2017. She gave birth to our second child in 2016, and uh, she had this like morning sickness. Well, we thought it was morning sickness all through the pregnancy. It was losing weight instead of gaining weight, and we were just kind of waiting for her to give birth. And we thought finally then you know she'll be okay, but it just kept going. Uh, and so like a month or two after that, she went to the doctor, and they diagnosed her with stage four stomach cancer. Aye. And, you know, I was spending a lot of time with her going up and down from Busan to Seoul to get cancer chemo treatments. And most of the time, she was just in so much pain that it was like me sitting beside her bed while she slept, right? Like the best thing she could do was sleep because then she wouldn't be in pain in this like super hot war because cancer patients get really cold, full of all these women with stomach cancer, you know, of all ages, and I had to do something. You know, I was listening to audiobooks, reading, but I remembered I had this novel. So I thought, I'll, maybe I'll just, you know, write a new novel. And so I read it over and I thought, I'll just fill in the middle. But after I read it again, I still thought the same thing. Like, it, it doesn't seem fun to write the middle parts. <laughs> <laughs> so actually, I, I emailed Boz and I said, Boz, can you send me all those prompts from like, you know, three years ago or something? And he was, he very graciously just sent me all of the prompts that he had, and he must have kept them somewhere. And I wrote another beginning, middle, and end to a novel, to the same novel, but from a different perspective. So from Carrie Kong's perspective, who's the second perspective character in the novel.
0: She's, she is Wan Lee, your protagonist, the basketball player, the sort of proxy for Jeremy Lin, uh, just so listeners are oriented. Wan Lee... Uh, has a romantic relationship going with Carrie, who is this uh, producer. She produces television.
1: Yeah. So she produces TV and movies and what she's working on in the book is K-drama, right? So now pretty popular, but at the time, really not many people outside of maybe Koreans and kind of other Asian diaspora people were were watching it here. And she wants to bring K-drama to America. So I was writing about what, so her, you know, I was writing also about her sister in the book has stage four stomach cancer, and so I was kind of u- writing about my experiences in the ward, and also the ways in which my wife and I were turning to this other kind of narrative in which, you know, people don't really have a lot of power over their lives, and what happens to them is kind of faded or miraculous or coincidental. And what we really needed at that time was a miracle. Like we, there was nothing we could do about cancer. And it was just like, either it's cured or it's not cured. And my wife was turning to religion. She got very religious during this time. And I, I guess was turning to K-drama. And so I was writing the second part of the book uh, by her bedside. And I also happened to have a few ideas for K-drama that I thought would be good shows. And I thought, now is the time I can use them. And so I threw those in there too. Uh, and at the end of it, I had like 150 pages, right? They were just a mess, but they were, it was in almost like two different novels telling the same story. And so I tried to like jam them together, <laughs> you know, it was like, it was like two blocks or like a block in a hole. And I was just trying to like push them together, but they weren't the right shape so I spent a long time just trying to figure out what the shape was that would let them connect uh, and revising a lot to try to get it to that point. I think the the parts now are like, there's three of one's parts, two of Carrie's, and then two K-Drama parts. And eventually I was able to figure out a way, I hope, <laughs> of making it all work together.
0: Definitely. Like this feels like, a, it fe- like, it feels to me like as I was reading and like reading from maybe a writerly perspective, it felt like the challenge of this book and the success of this book uh, had to do with finding a way to meld k-drama with sports drama i believe that i mean those are the two big ones maybe there's something i'm missing but you know finding a way to have those things operate in relation to one another narratively so i guess like a question is like, how did you get to the point where you knew it was working? Just trial and error over and over again. <laughs> like at what point, at what point did the pieces click into place? Was there something that you found was like the linchpin of it that made it all kind of make sense? Or was it just kind of a slog and you eventually got to a point where you, you felt it was as good as it was going to get. And then you just like, this is the way I feel about my books. Like, I'm just like, well, there's not much more I can do here. <laughs> uh, yeah, I've, time yeah, to be- let go. Time to let go. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I kind of both. You know, I actually, the K-drama ended up being the piece that helped me to put it together, right? As I was trying to think, like, what do these things have in common, you know, other than racism, right? <laughs> uh, and like representation, it was like the the ways that stories work, right? Insanity seems to happen out of nowhere, not because Lynn didn't have the talent, but because people weren't giving him a chance, right? It was kind of outside power that had to decide whether or not he could play. And outside coincidence, I gave him the opportunity to play. And in the world of K-drama, like I was saying before, right, so much of it is kind of outside of the character's hands. I think right around the time when I started Carrie's sections, my wife and I had watched these like maybe three or four dramas in a row, each of which started with the two romantic leads, like a thousand years in the past, having a bad fate, like coming to ruin. And then they would flash into the present and they'd be like reborn. And the same bodies, you know, cause they're actors, right? <laughs> and yeah. they had the same love story, but the same kinds of bad things were happening to them over in the, in the present now. And it would be like 15 episodes, of living exactly the same life again. And then like one episode where they've finally done something enough to like break them out of this fate. And that, I I don't know, that felt like, it's. it's, I don't think it's so different from Linsanity, that story or one story or, you know, the story of a lot of people who have to kind of survive in a country where they don't have a lot of agency. And so that became the kind of linchpin in a way. I put the K-drama straight into the book And I use them as ways to kind of teach readers how to read the larger stories of these two characters.
0: Okay, yeah. And you say, I think there's a line in the book where you say, unlike in Hollywood, in Korea, plot happens because of who people are, not because of what they choose. Like there are certain laws and rules to the way that K-drama unfolds, which you do a nice job of uh, spelling out in the book and something that I was impressed with is the fact that you kind of bring, uh, say like a Western reader along or somebody like me who doesn't know much about K drama, you, you have to orient that reader or you choose to orient that reader and you do a nice job of it without slowing down the narrative momentum, because I think that's a, that's a risk that you would be taking because you start to get into explanatory or expository mode in a novel. I think you risk getting boring or making people sort of pull away because they're like, well, where's the action? Can you talk a little bit about navigating that?
1: Yeah. I mean, it's definitely a hard thing. Sometimes I feel like it's the hardest thing and I know it's something, you know, maybe the major thing that my students have trouble with too is is like where to put the information, how to divvy out the information. Um, and I'm always telling them, you know, like put it, where it puts the most pressure on the present story. Um, And I think that helps that it doesn't feel like information anymore. It just feels like context to make whatever's happening even more dramatic. And I think that helps to kind of make it feel propulsive. Even the information feels propulsive then. But yeah, to think about like why I was explaining it. So Carrie's trying to bring K-drama to America, right? And so for her, her dream kind of relies on bringing a format that Koreans are very familiar with and that relies a lot on tropes and and things that you see a lot of in K-drama to an American audience that maybe there's some kind of Asian Americans who are familiar with it, but for most, even most Asian Americans probably are not familiar with this kind of story. And so she's got to introduce all of these tropes in order to make it more fun to watch the shows, right? Like if, if you kind of, Don't know that body swapping is a trope, and you're watching a body swapping drama, it seems like it's kind of a weird thing. And it's not, you're not catching the jokes that are kind of based on people knowing that this happens a lot in dramas.
0: So I'm curious to know, like, your history with K drama. Am I correct in saying that there's been a bit of a shift over the decade since you first wrote the outline? Like, from Linsanity to now, there has been a uh, a shift in terms of Korean popular culture. Finding its way into American popular culture, yeah, right? huge shift,
1: huge shift. I mean, when I grew up, I didn't know what kimchi was. Like, I, I'd never seen a Korean movie, never heard Korean music. My parents had never seen any or heard any of that. There were no Korean restaurants. I never had Korean food, right?
0: You, you had, and you were you were raised by white parents. Mm-hmm, yeah, I, right. so
1: I was adopted when I was two. Grew up in Connecticut, and now, right, like uh, you could you go to almost any town, even smaller towns in America, and you'll be able to find Korean food somewhere, like. Kimchi in an Asian market, and you probably have heard of BTS, right? And Squid of, Game, yeah. <laughs> Squid Game, yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 I've yeah. Heard so, of that? And
0: then there was the movie. Was the movie? uh, uh yeah, a, yeah, yeah. I'm I'm blanking on the name, of course, but like it Parasite. won the Oscar. Yeah, yeah, yeah Parasite, right, right, right. right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So there's examples, and I'm I'm wondering, like, when did you? start getting in, was it in Korea when your wife was sick? Was that when you started to like watch K-drama? No, it was,
1: uh, so I went to Korea when I was 23, maybe 23, 24, uh, for the first time since my adoption. And when I was there, you know, I couldn't watch American TV because there was none really except for, uh, well, uh, Sex and the City. I watched a lot of Sex and the City because it was like (laughs) the only show they had on there. Right, Um, right. And then I was, you know, watching shows with my wife and trying to figure out how we could watch things with subtitles, you know, go to DVD rooms or whatever. And so I watched my first K-drama there. I think it was uh, You're Beautiful, which is about these twins, one who's a boy and one who's a girl, and the boy joins this boy group but he is getting surgery or something in America, and so he can't actually be there. And so his sister, who's trying to become a nun, (laughs) stands in for him until he can come and join the group. And all the boys in the boy group fall in love with her at varying stages and kind of varying levels of knowledge. And she ends up with the lead singer. And it was just it was so propulsive, right? Like even when I was not really... Wanting to enjoy watching it, I, was, I couldn't stop watching it. And so I was kind of hooked from there on and I've been watching K-drama ever since. Uh, so I don't know, like 15 years, maybe 16 years.
0: I feel like it's very like your awakening to K-drama probably is tied to the writing, not only of this book, but also of Craft in the Real World. Yeah, absolutely. Have, you have to have been like, wow, because like these modes of storytelling and we see it, you know, we see it when we watch uh, foreign cinema, for example, or what, what do you call it? Uh, international cinema, I think is the term. Or when you read books that are in translation or whatever, yeah. it's it's important to do that because you're suddenly like uh, made aware of the fact that, especially for people who grew up in the age of, uh, you know, like all of us now, television and <laughs> cinema, like Hollywood cinema, it's very easy to be persuaded or to think that there's just this mode of storytelling that, enter, you know, our entertainment culture churns out, and this is the way to do it, and these are the tropes, and these are the, you know, genres and everything else. But
1: movies, some, yeah. Well, you know,
0: <laughs> uh, but then you spend some time overseas. And, you, you know, you sort of – it forces your hand a little bit. Like you said, it's, it's Sex in the City or subtitles in K drama.
1: <laughs> no, absolutely. One of the first movies I saw in Korea it was this movie The King and the Clown. And uh, the first half of the drama, it's about a, a court jester or a jester. And the first half of the drama is this, like – it's just, as a jester being funny, right? It's like a, it's a comedy. And then halfway through, he enters the king's court, and then it just becomes, like, a total trage- tragedy. And I remember thinking like, what the, like, what the hell is going on here? And, you know, I never seen something completely change genres halfway through the movie. And now I, I see that all the time because I'm watching a lot of Korean cinema. But at, the first time I saw it, I thought it was like a totally new thing and a, like a completely experimental thing. And I just didn't realize that this is just like a, a thing that happens in other places. Right.
0: Well, it's interesting. Now that you're talking, I'm thinking about, I have, I'm like, I'm like formulating a theory on the fly. <laughs> where, I'm, where I'm like, maybe the more miserable and toxic American culture becomes, especially like at the political <laughs> level, and but like, just like in the, you know, economics, post-capital or late capitalism, all that kind of stuff, maybe the more toxic it becomes, the more appetite we will have for other narratives. Just because like, I'm thinking of like how the Banshees of Inishar is like this big, you know, to do this season. Like that's a film from another place that a lot of people are like hanging on to. And I watched it and I think what was sort of lovely about it is that it wasn't here. <laughs> like it's, it's like this beautiful Irish coast even though it's like, you know, hard scrabble and difficult and kind of like the conditions can be brutal. I was like, this is just lovely, you know. Even though this is uh, this guy's cutting his fingers off or whatever. So,
1: <laughs> yeah. a little
0: extreme. <laughs> yeah, I don't know, but maybe there's something to that, you know, maybe there's something to that that we would look outwards maybe more if things here at home are unsatisfactory and maybe there could be benefits from that, you know, derived from that, but I don't know. I just came up with it 30 seconds ago, so I don't like <laughs> I think we'd have post to... it on Twitter now. And <laughs> Test it out. Bring the haters. <laughs> so did you, you know, in being exposed to K-drama and, and sort of, I guess, sort of like binging on it, right? Suddenly this is, if this is all you've got, then suddenly you're on this steady diet did you then turn maybe to other forms of narrative or, or cultural traditions and storytelling? Like, I'm curious to know, like, what the hybrid might be or what the the mix might be at this point in terms of your influences.
1: Yeah. So K-drama, definitely a big influence. Sometimes I, I joke, but also it's serious that I wrote this book so that I could say that I was researching K-drama when I was watching it and <laughs> get away right. with it. But also I read a lot of Japanese literature, especially I, something about those stories really talks to me and the way that I see the world. You know, I read a lot of books in translation in general, but also a lot of Asian American literature. You know, most of the time when I'm reading American lit, it's Asian American lit. i thinking about it within that tradition, which is like, has some touchstones with foreign literature, or Asian literature, but is really its kind of own thing now.
0: Yeah, I, I I love when I'm reading stuff in translation, it and it's really good. It gives me I have a special like reverence for good translators. Yeah, Like me people too. People who people who do that work are so unsung. I'm always so careful to make sure to to call to like name check them and call them out when I have a writer on the show whose book is in translation because. So what will we do without these people? You know, it sucks bring, when they don't
1: have their name on the cover too. I always feel so bad for them.
0: Yeah, yeah, and that's like a, you know that's its own art form. That's not, a, it's not simple to do. You know, when it's done well, you really recognize it. And uh, conversely, I feel like sometimes I'll read a translation where it's not done so well. And it leaves me with this feeling of, uh, of wonder, of like wondering what I'm missing. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah.
1: Like, it's I, hard because you can't tell whether it's like in the original too, or if it's just the translation.
0: Yeah. And then I guess like, maybe there's a, also the question if it's really good, if the translation has somehow elevated the original, uh, I guess that's possible too, but I always, I think I, every time I read a book in translation, I tell myself I should be doing more of this, uh, It's sort of the point, but so there's something about Juan Lee's story that struck me. And I think it's a quote from him in the book where he says, I went, like it was right, right about the time that he got on the court for the first time. Like the Knicks put him on the court because of all these injuries to the players who were in front of him. And he said something to the effect of, "I did what I always do, which is I played as if my life depended on each play." That really hit me. I think it's true to life. I think it's true to like minority experience in the states in the in terms of like the stakes of failure or success. Uh, I don't know I don't it packed an emotional punch for me to read that. It made me maybe think about my own privilege and whether or not I do anything with that sense of, uh, that, that sense of like life or death, like that scale attached to it.
1: Mm, Yeah. When you only have a few opportunities, right. Each one counts for so much. Yeah. I was just talking to somebody and they were saying they were, they had been talking to like a showrunner for, a uh, like a Muslim American show and, and the showrunner was saying, I just want to be able to fail and still get money thrown at me, just like any white showrunner would. I right. <laughs> right? Like, just want to right. be able to fail. I, I think there's something to that for sure. It's, it's hard to fail when you have so few chances because each failure seems like it's going to end everything. You always have this sense, I think, sometimes living as somebody so disempowered that like any fuck up you make is going to bring your whole life crashing down.
0: Yeah, and I'm wondering too if Jeremy Lin has received a copy of this book. Do you know if he's if he's read it?
1: I don't know. I mean, yeah, it'd be great, I guess.
0: But you haven't like tried to get him a copy or
1: anything, <laughs> I haven't. I don't. I don't know him personally, sadly. Oh, okay.
0: I feel like you guys We're should working hang out together. Uh-huh. <laughs> Shoot, just shooting hoops at the Y, you it's know. Like after pressing
1: a... two hundred, I'm pressing twenty. <laughs>
0: What What is he up to today? Do you know?
1: Uh, I think he's playing abroad. Okay. I'm not sure.
0: Yeah. Which, which, uh, that, I feel like that in the sport has grown. I have a buddy who played college ball and then went, played in Europe for like a decade and Asia. He was all over the place, but he made a great living. Yeah. Got to, got to travel with his young family. Like, I don't know. it's just like, it seemed like a pretty sweet deal.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It sounds nice though. I think on the other hand, right. Like. There's so many games, you probably don't get to see your kids as much as you would want. Right, right, right.
0: Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app.
1: Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease.
0: So was there any, I mean, obviously the K-drama, you kind of learned by binging on it, it, sort of picked up a lot. Uh, but I'm, I'm also impressed at the level of prose in this book when it comes to your depictions of the sport of basketball. Thanks. Yeah, it's, it's well done, you know. <laughs> and th- this stuff isn't always super simple to write about. It's obviously a very physical thing, and you've got to bring people in who might not have any, like, orientation to the sport, you know. The same thing with K-drama. Like You're really having to bring people along and make it clear to them, even if they don't know a thing about it. you talk about that challenge and like how you, like did you have to do research or was like your fandom and your playing of the game as a kid enough to, to you know, carry you through?
1: Yeah, I didn't really have to do any research per se. I just tried to focus on the things that you can kind of feel on the court, which is like the momentum and the tension and like the way that things shift like the, in the physical feeling of that, and trying to capture that instead of like how somebody dribbles a ball, or right, like who passes to whom, and the kind of technically what is happening on the court part of it. I think when you're watching basketball and you've seen it, you know, you've been watching it for a very long time. You, it's what's interesting is like the way that the energy flows. You know, like you can almost tell when somebody's going to go, when one team's going to go on a streak, and when that streak is dying down, and how the kind of the lead will change and the ways in which the like other things that are happening are affecting the score or outcome of the game.
0: It's interesting that you say that because I watch an NBA game and you'll see a team go up by like 15 or 20 points. And almost always the team that's behind will then make a run just because I think the team that's up maybe lets off the gas a little bit and, there are these natural, unlike predictable fluctuations of energy to at least a professional basketball game that I feel like you see in almost every game.
1: Yeah, I watch a lot of like variety shows, Korean variety shows, and I'm always surprised like how often the games will come down to the very last go. I mean, sometimes they're just like, messing with the score they're like okay this last game will call you know you'll get 10,000 points if you win this last game and it's been like 10 points the entire time right but like we have this kind of natural feeling I think you're right to like if you're far in the lead you just you think okay I can let up a little bit and if you're way behind you're like crap I gotta do something now
0: have you like now that you've moved to New York have you been going to Knicks games at all have you gotten to go
1: I haven't gotten to go. I would I would love to go, but I'd have to bring my kids, and I think they would get bored yeah, fast. Right.
0: Yeah. <laughs> but I feel like, you know, because I tried. I had this, like, dream. I was like, I'm going to bring my family to a, a Dodgers game. I was like, I'm a dad. We're going to go to a baseball game in America. You know, that whole thing.
1: <laughs> Eat some hot dogs. Yeah,
0: or just whatever, you know. And, like, we go there, and it was such a fail because the game is... <laughs> The game is so slow. (laughs) So slow. We were sitting slower now. Yeah. We were sitting far from you. You're you're always sitting far from the field, but it was just like they were bored out of their minds. They didn't have any idea what was going on. I couldn't really enjoy the game. And then conversely, like going to an NBA game, I feel like because the action is is quicker uh, that it's a little bit easier for them to get into. But there were, there were also – I think we went to a Clippers game. This was years ago. But there, were like, there was like a laser light show. Like, oh, okay. And like uh-huh. the, the music that plays at like commercial breaks and stuff. <laughs> yeah, that, yeah. That was enough. That wasn't the game. It was that stuff that they were like, yes. You know?
1: so, <laughs> yes, the uh, game is finally uh, over. Yeah, right. right, right. <laughs> yeah, no. I remember as a kid thinking like the most fun were soccer and hockey to go to, go to and actually like sit there, even though I, I like – like football and basketball much more, playing and watching it on TV.
0: Yeah, that's interesting. I, you know, I guess I'll have to try again. I just I was so scarred from the Dodger game that I think I was just like, well, we'll, we'll press pause on this for like another eight years <laughs> <You> know, wait, <laughs> wait, wait until they understand the game at least a little bit. but
1: Now they're never going to want to watch it anyway, though, because you've traumatized them.
0: I mean, honestly, like <laughs> there's so like the things that I get excited about, like as a sports fan have yet to fully carry over to either of my kids. (laughs) Just as a person. Just, I think they might not be into it. And I've got to accept that. But like when you're a sports fan and like the game's on, like you just want like, watch this, you know, like and nobody in my family gives a shit. (laughs) (laughs) So I want to talk to you a little bit uh, about like what's been going on with you. Because we've talked on this show multiple times now. And I feel like that's like sort of a check-in. You know, you've been through so much over the past decade creatively personally and otherwise and you've also bounced around a lot like you're in New York now and am, you're yeah. teaching te- teaching at Columbia this is a relatively new development
1: yeah it's very new so I started in the fall I was in Oklahoma for a hot minute and then before that in Iowa for four years yeah it just happened I actually did no intention to leave after one year in Oklahoma it just a Columbia job came up and I thought well I Never see Columbia jobs come up, so might as well just shoot my shot. And then I had no bargaining power because <laughs> <Right. laughs> I had applied to nothing. Right. But I'm here, and it's it's great to be here for sure. I, I really felt I, – I remember driving the kids across the country to come back here and passing – it was like the trees changed, you know, like the landscape changed. And I felt suddenly like, oh, I'd, like I, I actually – I've been away from what makes me feel like a normal person for so long.
0: Right. Well, I mean, just from your upbringing in Connecticut.
1: Mm -hmm, Yeah.
0: Had you lived in New York before?
1: No, I haven't lived in New York before. I actually thought before that I would hate living in New York just because it's so tiring when you visit. It's like a lot of fun, but then I always felt like on the train out or the bus out back to Boston or wherever, like, thank God I'm out of there, Mm -hmm. right? Like, it's fun, but I don't want to like stay there forever. Right but i've i've found living here it's just it's it's much less hectic there's like a very community based neighborhoody feel and like we barely leave like the 10 block radius where my kid's school is and you know restaurants are all around we just go grocery shopping in the grocery store at the bottom
0: of the building it's great that's awesome or right, right there by columbia is that where you mm-hmm. live like uptown yep. or whatever yep yep well i'll tell you i almost jumped i literally like probably let out a whoop or something when I saw that you had gotten that job. I'm so happy for you.
1: Thank you so much.
0: That's a great break. And I mean, nothing against Iowa or Oklahoma, but I feel like, this is a better option or something. I feel like, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's a better option for <laughs> yeah, sure. Yeah, right. <laughs> I don't think
1: anybody's going to take offense. To that. <laughs> no, no. You know, I'm just trying to trying to be. Uh, You're going to get trolled on Twitter for yeah. that one too.
0: Just <laughs> trying to be <laughs> judicious here, but I, you know, Columbia is a great job, great place to be teaching, and you know, you've been really industrious, publishing books, getting work done, getting your PhD, getting ed- all this stuff against the backdrop of incredible stress and, uh, the loss of your wife and then having to be a single parent. So just a salute for, I don't know, for getting there and getting this book out into the world. I think so many of us struggle to write books under the burden of far less. Well,
1: it's still definitely a struggle for sure. Right. It's hard. It's a hard thing. I feel like anybody who writes a book. I feel proud of it but thank you so much for saying that it's yeah it means a lot
0: and without getting you know you don't have to get too deep into the weeds but how are you doing like uh personally like you know like uh, it's, it's, <laughs> you know it's, it's some, some time has gone by i know obviously that the grief never goes away but uh you know you and your kids are doing all right
1: we're doing pretty good you know the kids have a school finally that they like that has been not really a, the case for a long time and uh-huh uh you know they seem to like the city we're just adjusting trying to live that big city life or whatever
0: yeah you get options i mean there's so much to do in new york it's like but i feel like it's sort of like living in los angeles where people are like you must go to the beach all the time and it's like eh. <laughs> probably, <laughs> probably not as much as you would think unless you live on the west side but i mean you know there's like all these museums and the park and the you know this that and the other like do you get to do some of that fun stuff with them
1: yeah, we go to the park a lot. I mean, I think it's different just because you don't have to drive here, right? So you're just kind of walking. If I had to drive everywhere, I don't know if we would go <laughs> to right. anywhere. Yeah. But yeah, like we're I don't know, twelve blocks from Central Park. So we've we walk to the park a lot and go to a bunch of playgrounds. I mean the number of playgrounds, right? Like that was the first thing my son was into. He was just like, There's so many playgrounds here. <laughs> <laughs> I love New York.
0: <laughs> That's all. And that's cool that they get to grow up there. I feel like, yeah. uh, I always felt, I've said this before in this show, but I had a friend in college who was, uh, raised in Manhattan. And, uh, that was the first person I think I'd met who was raised in New York city. And I felt like he was way ahead of me.
1: <laughs> in what way? Like, in what way? Like,
0: well, it was like, I got, to, like I was in college and I was kind of going nuts and he was like, you know, I dropped acid in ninth grade and committed arson. He's like, I'm over it. He sort of. Had, so he was jaded. You know? Yeah. He. Was,
1: and you were like, he, man, he was I just, wish I could be jaded like you.
0: <laughs> <laughs> he was, he was mature in a weird, you know. He was calmer and more mature and had his shit more together in college because he had been exposed to all of the things that were brand new to me at the age of eighteen. Like he'd been there f- four or five years ahead of me. You know and uh i'm just happy for you you know i feel like it's a good break and if anybody deserved one it's you
1: thanks so much thank you really appreciate it
0: and so you then you know prior to this book released uh craft in the real world which i feel like was kind of a a i don't know like a, a, a career shift as well you know the that book had a really great reception and Maybe opened up opportunities to you. Do you think I mean I probably Yeah, helped.
1: absolutely. Probably helped me get this job,
0: I'm sure. And what about the ways in which you learned from the writing of that book? <laughs> like we always learn from the books that we write. And I have to imagine, like, you know, it's it's you sort of defining how you want to teach to yourself, but it's also you maybe opening up avenues and defining the way that you want to tell stories to others right? Like that book must've been a great education.
1: Yeah. Actually, oddly, I think it's, it was kind of the other way around. I was learning so much from writing fiction and from teaching and just wrote the book to try to put those things down because it seemed like they could help other people. I actually think like, it would be nice to write a book, I guess, like kind of setting out, setting out things you want to do in the future. But these were, this was just kind of like summing up what I was doing and had done in the past a lot of the discoveries or all the discoveries kind of came from the doing and then were just kind of jotted down in the book. Uh, like the, you know, the different kinds of stories in, in this novel and then in my last novel, I struggled a lot trying to figure out how to tell those stories. And then I was just kind of describing what I had learned from that process in graft in the real world. But I just felt like, you know, actually I still feel like I wouldn't have written that book If I hadn't felt like somebody would benefit from it and it didn't seem like it would, should be, there should be books like it out there, I'd be much happier just writing novels about (laughs) K-drama.
0: Right, right. Well, so did, I'm curious, did that book have like a, was it contracted or did you write it and then sell it?
1: Uh, So we sold it on a outline so like on a proposal, right? Mm. but I'd written most of it already just as like blog posts and essays and things to try to help the teaching community
0: and what has the what was the, I mean the response has been great I know I, I I catch it you know on Twitter and stuff like that, but how like have you noticed like really? big shifts, like, you know, and and have you gotten a lot of feedback on it from people who are like, thank God, you know, that somebody said this and put this in a book?
1: Yeah. I think a lot of people feel similarly like that, right. That it's a, it's an object. It's like a, it offers some kind of authority to the things that they've been wanting, you know, programs to do or, you know, classrooms to kind of acknowledge and talk about. And so now they have like a, a thing they can point to and say, right? Like this, look, you can see it here, what I've been talking about. It's, it's, you know, somebody wrote a book about it. So I'm glad to see that it's like offered some kind of feeling to them that they are like confirmed in their, you know, and what seems sometimes like it's just like a lonely feeling.
0: So to get back to the sense of wonder, something that I really admire about it is how efficient it is. This isn't like a super long book. Uh, you know, I'm tempted to, like, make, like, uh, comparisons that have to do with, like, sport. <laughs> it's muscular. <laughs> it's it's lean. You know what I'm saying? Like, but it is that. It doesn't feel like there's like a lot of wasted motion in this book. And I think a lot of the reviews that I've read and the blurbs and stuff, they make note of that. Like, this is really uh, kinetic. And the prose feels... I don't know. I just love it. It's just, it feels be- like really beautifully rendered. And it feels like you did the work. This is how I always feel whenever I read a book with this effect where you're not like relying on the reader to sort of separate the wheat from the chaff. You're, you've done it. It's just, just what's necessary is there and nothing else. And I'm wondering if in the writing of the book, you went way longer in earlier drafts and then had to pair away, or if you're a writer who like edits as you go, which I think is another way to do it, where you're just sitting there like noodling with the same sentence fifty million times until you finally get it down.
1: Yeah, a little bit of both, actually. I used to be much more an a writer who noodled with it as I went, but then I kind of realized I was just changing it to almost exactly the same version of the sentence. And it took me like thirty minutes to write a sentence. Right. <laughs> if you like five words had possibly been changed to synonyms in a like a thirty word sentence and Right. It didn't seem worth it. <laughs> right, um, right. And so I still do that, but I, I try not to. Uh, but so I actually the the first draft, you know, as I mentioned, was pretty short and even the first draft of each section was shorter than the book. But I, I kind of had this, I did this revision month a really long time ago and one of the writers was talking about revision as a accordion. And I, and I like that kind of image of it. Like for me, it often starts small, but then As I revise, I'm like expanding the breath and then I'm paring it back down and it keeps going back in and out, in and out uh, until I've got the music right.
0: Yeah. You know, hearing you talk, I'm thinking like I've been working on a new book and I'm like 15,000 words into it or so. And I've been working on this opening section for like four or five months, 15,000 words. (laughs) (laughs) it seems like I should be moving faster. And I think it's because I edit as I go, like I will reread the entire thing every time I sit down and I will fuck with it over and over and over again. I think the upside is that I don't, when it's done, it's usually pretty close to done uh, because it's, uh, it's just received hundreds of reads. The downside is that I'm probably, like you say, taking like a, like, it's like a, it's like a, a circular path in a lot of in a lot of senses like you're noodling and noodling and noodling you're probably winding up in in a lot of cases close to where you started yeah so i'm i'm think i'm often thinking to myself like is there a more efficient way to be doing this am i just being a fool here <laughs> <laughs> i think that all the time <laughs> yeah but i guess you you know i think that.
1: it a lot about like the kind of planners too right people who plan out their entire novel i always think that must be way more efficient but i tr- i tried it recently and I I wrote a whole draft and it only covered like the first two things in the plan. <laughs> and at the end of it, I was like, I need to stop. Yeah, I was like, this is, I've written like 200 pages. I'm just gonna stop here. And so I never got to any of the rest of the plan. But also, like, I found that I would I would do that editing, but then also do a ton of revision on the backside. And so by the time I revised it, all of the words that I'd spent so long trying to get right they were all gone you know like I ended up cutting out all those 15,000 words and then I'd spent so long getting them right Uh and they
0: weren't even in the book (laughs) I look I look I look forward to that painful (laughs) excision thanks for reminding me and it's funny too you talk about planning because it's like I feel like everything I do is backwards it's like I do eventually get to a plan but by the time I do it's towards the end of the process and then it's kind of like a reverse engineering you're sort of applying the plan to your book to the big mess that you've made with this long draft that you thought was like a final draft and turns out to be nothing of the sort.
1: <laughs> yeah, I do that too. I think it's pretty helpful with, with structure in the back end. think you're trying to like write down all the things that you already did unconsciously and then try to figure out how to order them in a way that'll be more helpful to the book. I, I think that's really helpful.
0: It's nice too, those late stages when you feel like it's clicking into place and that's the best part I think or maybe like <laughs> it's it's like the most emotionally enjoyable. I mean, you can have little you can have a good day at any stage of the process, but it's nice when you feel like you know where everything goes or you have a real sense of an ending and I don't know. I can I can imagine you had that sensation with this book, especially because of the layered narrative and the interlocking like the, you know, really explicitly interlocking nature of like the K-drama thing and the sports drama thing and the challenges that that posed. It must have been nice when you finally like felt like you had it.
1: At the end, it's nice for sure. I mean, the the best part sometimes is like you've finished the book, but it hasn't, it's not even close to coming out, right? It just exists as a thing that will eventually be published i like that part before the press before the press stuff starts (laughs) but i also you know i I get a lot of frustration from when i feel like i know things are in the right places but i have to you know improve the things that are there because then when i start changing them i also feel like i need to move them around and they don't fit as well right so that if yeah I, i like it when it's everything's so messy you know after that first draft or two Everything's so messy. You can just move anywhere, right? It's just like so full of possibility. You can just do anything with it. And it won't matter because it's all bad.
0: Right. <laughs> <laughs> Feel empowered by the shittiness of it. <laughs> yes, <breath>. yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, so what about writing across gender? Because you do that. This is a multiple POV book, as you talked about earlier. And you're writing from Juan's perspective. You're also writing from Carrie, his love interest's perspective. And that's something that I've never done is I have never written from a female POV and I have to cop to it. I'm scared. I think I've, I've thought of it and I'm like, Oh, I feel like that could be like a minefield. Like how did you, how how did you do that? Like what was the, were there any like, like lessons learned or like rules that you followed that helped you?
1: I thought a lot about how power works differently and, and the, you know, like just living in this life, right? You think a lot about how you come up against power, but, other people of other genders or whatever have come up against power so differently. And So a lot of what I was trying to do was to figure out how living in the same world but having it be a kind of different world would then affect the ways in which Carrie felt possible to live within that world. And I hope I got it right, but I'm sure, you know, I'm sure I fucked up somewhere.
0: I don't know. I bought it. You know, <laughs> Thanks.: <laughs> Yeah, you sold me. I was like, no reader.): <laughs> It's fine. Don't, don't listen to anybody. It's fine. Uh, so what about, like, uh, I, you know, I always ask people if are you working on anything new? like I know that sometimes you're just kind of done for a bit and you're recharging your batteries, but is there you seem pretty industrious. Is there another book in the works?
1: I don't like to sit on my hands. So I've got an essay collection coming out, supposedly. Uh, next year, but definitely not next year. I uh-huh. <laughs> just told my editor the other day <laughs> yeah. in front of a bunch of other people that I wasn't going to so search it. Like if she wanted to beat me up, she couldn't. <laughs> 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 that I probably wasn't going to get there on time. But then I actually, I wrote, while I was in Oklahoma for a year, I wrote the draft of another novel, first draft about a, a revenge cult, an Asian-American revenge cult uh, that kind of takes revenge on... People who've done various wrongs against Asian Americans over the last like hundred years or so, and I tried revising it in the uh, in the I don't know fall, I guess, and uh, it failed miserably. So I put it aside for a little while, but I hope to get back to it soon.
0: Do you know why it failed?
1: No, I not really. I think I just wasn't ready for the book, and which is a kind of. It tends to take me a really long time between like starting a book and, and publishing it and which was fine before because I had like a just projects going and I could just work on a different project. But now that I only have this one, it feels, I feel bereft. You know, I just kind of like have to wait now yeah. until I can actually work on this thing.
0: But that awareness feels like a kind of wisdom. I think maybe in an early earlier stage of your career, if you were in that position, you might personalize it more, like this is a personal failure. But the way that you phrase it, like I'm not ready for the book yet, it feels like the, the perspective that you get to once you've written a bunch of books, sometimes it just takes a minute. And sometimes you need to like, I've found anyway that like sometimes I'll just need to, I call it like eating, I need to eat more. Like mm. I, which usually means I need, to, I need to read more. You know, yeah. I, I need to, or you have some sort of life experience that will find its way into the plot and it'll suddenly unlock a bunch of stuff. You know what I'm saying? Like it's just yeah. it can some of it's just like serendipity and the stuff of life and letting time sort of work its its weird magic.
1: Yeah, you know, Margot Livesy used to call it filling up. I I think of it that way. Like you empty yourself out all the time, right? And if you're doing a good job, you empty yourself out and you gotta fill up again. You gotta eat.
0: And you and you also like sometimes it's a matter of uh, distance too. Like you just you can't see it clearly. You're you're too close to it. You get to go away for a little bit. and You come back and suddenly, it's in sharper focus or something.
1: I mean, that didn't stop me from writing the same ten thousand words over and over again for three months in the fall. <laughs>
0: <laughs> you know, but that's uh, I gotta believe that's part of yeah, it. it. Like one of the it. things that's one of the things that's so crazy, and crazy making about writing. Is how you can be in like kind of a f- creative fever and you can, you know, write 10 or 20 or 30 or f- you know, even an entire book. Uh, and you can feel so good about it in certain moments. And then like there's that dawning realization that it's not. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like the way you fool yourself, I think, is the, I mean, even with experience, it's it's easy to get caught up in it and uh, you know, to believe your own lies or something, but you have to go through that. You have to kind of weather those storms. And it's interesting to me, like when you eventually get to the place where the thing starts to get done, it's always this interesting question between like, have I just worn myself out and is this just me surrendering (laughs) or have I really arrived at a place where it's, it's clicked? You know what I'm saying? I guess it's some combination. Yeah.
1: I think that must make us better people though, right? Like it's gotta be good for us to acknowledge our failure. I think so many people don't want to acknowledge their failures at all. And at least we have this one field where we just have to. We have to acknowledge our failures, right?
0: You know, I listen to I don't listen to literary podcasts because I think I would go insane if I did because I'm doing one, you know, all the time, <laughs> but I I listen to a lot of interview podcasts. I love interviews and I listen to interviews with artists in other mediums, you know, a lot of times and Uh, you'll, you know, it'd be like celebrities talking about trying to write their memoir or something, or, you know, it'll be some like bro podcast or something, and they'll be talking about writing a book. And what I always note is how consistently people say what utter hell, what uniquely utter hell writing a book is (laughs) compared to say like, you know, putting together a comedy set or, you know, acting in a movie or something like that. Like we have given ourselves a task that I think is universally agreed upon to be, uh incredibly difficult and humbling and isolating <laughs> yeah it's i mean not to i'm not trying to pat us you know pat myself on the back or anything i'm just saying like i think in point of fact like writing books is really fucking hard yeah it's and hard you ever you ever sit around going like what is it about me and about us like the right like, what is it like psychologically <laughs> and emotionally that, that makes us right like are we are we uh, masochists yeah, is yeah, that what it is broken or or, is it, or or like let's let's flip this a little bit and make ourselves look better. Do we just have? Do we have a high pain tolerance? I don't have.
1: A, I have a very low pain tolerance. <laughs> you well, can I'm like talking, poke I'm... me with your fingernail and I'd be like, "Holy shit, that hurt!"
0: <laughs> I'm talking about. I'm talking about a specific kind of pain. Emotional, though, you know, like emotional. The. Like living with not only the failure, like the the humbling that it takes to, you know, that you repeatedly get when you're trying to write a book, but also the uncertainty. Yeah, I think that's maybe the hardest part yeah. for me in some respects is that like feeling of like, oh my god, I've been at this for six months. Like, is it all for naught? Or why am I doing this anyway? If only like you know a hundred people are probably going to read it, or you know, all the different ways we sort of torture ourselves, but. You have to become adept, at least to some extent, at living with that and just kind of, I don't know, coexisting with it if you're going to do this uh, for a career or or just like if you're going to make books consistently. That's got to become, you got to make friends with that on some level, right?
1: Or bedmates? I don't know. <laughs> Frenemies? <Right>. <laughs> Frenemies.
0: <laughs> <laughs> it's my shadow self. I don't know. Frenemies
1: with benefits?
0: very limited usually, but yeah, maybe some benefits. And I do, I do think, you know, kidding aside, I do think that maybe that's what, you know, that has to be what keeps us going because there are, I think, real psychological and even emotional benefits to doing this work. Yeah. It doesn't, it does enrich you, right? Like we wouldn't do it otherwise. Why would we put ourselves through this if we weren't getting something out of it?
1: Yeah. it's a good question. What are we getting out of it?
0: What are you getting out of it?
1: I don't know, control? I often think we're just control freaks, right? That's why the uncertainty is so hard. It's like we're, we're trading uncertainty for being able to control all of the little parts, right? Why don't we write for TV or why don't we do something more collaborative? Because it would drive me wild to have other people <laughs> be able to do the things that I just want to take over for myself. But, of course, like right, like I don't know if that's that's not really what I'm getting out of it though. it's definitely something that uh helps me feel like I have some aspect of control in a world where I don't have as much control as I often wish I had. what am I getting yeah. out of it? I don't know
0: well, its you know, I think that writers in general, like academics, bookish people, you know the culture sort of characterizes or or makes a caricature of such people as being like brainy. Right? Mm-hmm. You know, like we're smart people, nerds, you know, who are writing books and reading books a lot. And I think there's some truth to that. But like, from my own personal perspective, I think that I would like assess my own intelligence as being very middle of the road. And I feel like I'm more confused. Than the average person, or maybe more aware of my own confusion, which I guess is a form of maybe intelligence. But you know what I'm saying? Like I don't feel like I'm I don't feel like I've I've got anything mastered. I feel lost. And that's why I'm turning to books and writing is to try to make sense of something, you know, like maybe to have control over it in a world that's chaotic and often like difficult and miserable. And it gives you a kind of refuge, but it's also like a form of emotional processing for me. And I do feel like after the completion of a project, especially like my, my last book, like there was this sense of like, okay, like I did as much as I could with that. Like I, I chewed on it, I tried to make it make sense and I did learn something. And I do feel a sense of kind of leaving it behind as much as one can. Like with the sense of wonder, K, you know, K-drama, the Jeremy Lin thing, your relationship to American culture in that time, you know, or let like, just for the sake of simple, you know, simplicity, like over the past decade or whatever, do you feel a, a similar sense or any kind of similar sense of, I don't know, having processed it and gotten to a place where you at least maybe reached some level of understanding. And now you can sort of shed that skin and move on to something else.
1: Hmm. I wouldn't say so for me. But what you're saying earlier about, like, being aware that you're confused, I-, I think that's really important, actually, and is something we get from books and from writing, right? Just, like, the world is fucking mysterious and uncertain and, like, sometimes horrible and often Feels like it's totally out of your control, and it's like you're stepping into the abyss all the time. I don't think I could do that if I didn't have books.
0: Yeah, it makes me now. I'm circling back to that thing about, uh, you know, there's a line in the book. I think K drama shines in the tension between certainty and wonder, and unlike in Hollywood, uh, in Korea, plot happens because of who people are and not what they choose. And I think your book and K drama, even though I have, I have the cop to not being fluent in k-drama outside of i guess what you've introduced me to is that maybe uh korean culture and other cultures in the world are maybe a little bit more attuned to that mystery uh and that magic you know and the uh, i don't know i guess like you kind of get some of it sometimes in american cinema and television culture but Maybe not to the same degree uh, of intensity. You know what I'm saying? I don't know. Yeah, just like there's
1: there's some shows that'll get at it, right? Like I remember feeling that way with Lost, and knowing they had no idea what they were doing, and that that was actually the fun of the show. But yeah, there's there there is kind of a. Sometimes I think in our culture, American culture, we have a, a lot of difficulty with uncertainty. And with uh, not being able to control things. Uh, Yeah. We're country of control freaks. Yeah. Right.
0: And the the word that's coming to mind is wild. Like the wildness. Yeah. Like there's a wildness to the kind of storytelling that you, that K-drama does that you're describing in the book, at least from like my American vantage, you know, like there's, like our storytelling tends to be more restrictive or something by comparison in terms of like what's possible on the screen and how plots unfold and uh, like how elements of magic or magical realism might be introduced or do you know what I'm getting at? Like, I just like, we don't have, there's not as much sense of play or something too often. And again, I I have to flag that my diet as a consumer of television, like I haven't seen so much like I don't see anything usually. I'm so doing this and reading books and, you know, I'm in that channel. So I'm not the culture vulture, you know, that a lot of people are who, and, you know, I therefore like don't have maybe the best perspective on it all, but it just feels that way, you know, based on my limited diet.
1: Yeah. Maybe it's like in the world, right? Like cultures that believe in ghosts or like, you know, things, there's a something in the book where it's like, one of the characters in the K- in one of the K dramas I made up can see ghosts, and none of the villagers like think that's weird because they think ghosts exist and they're all around us. And it, it, the only weird thing is that one person can see them, not that not that ghosts are weird. And so, like, you, you just kind of some other cultures maybe you're living in a place where mystery is just like a more natural part of life, or like a. Broader mystery. I mean, I think we have a lot of mystery here, but it's all a lot of it is so funneled into religion and like the ability or the desire for religion to explain that mystery in one single and easily digestible way. And maybe that's different, even like a culture with multiple gods or, you know, uh, mysticism or, uh, you know, like animal gods or something.
0: So, where are you on religion? got anything?
1: I grew up super Catholic. I think we talked about this once on the podcast. My parents are, are like, you know, super Catholics, right? My dad was going to become a priest when he married my mom. And, uh, so I grew up going to church every week, praying and thinking that hell was a real place. Heaven was a real place. God is like a white dude with a beard. (laughs) Uh, and now I just think, man, those things seem so ridiculous to me now. I actually believe in God still, but it's not a, a person. I, I, I think it's, it's, it's contradictory to think that God is a person. And then just say that God is like beyond our understanding. Right. Um, right. Omnip, omnipotent. Omn, you know, like that's not a person. <laughs> it's definitely not a white dude with a beard. No. <laughs> uh, and so I'm trying to get across to my kids too, uh, that like, Maybe it would be, even if we just took the teachings at face value, they wouldn't lead to the places where religion seems to take them to. I, I reread uh, The Color Purple a couple of years ago, and then I listened to it on audio too. And in the audiobook version I had, Alice Walker does the introduction to the book. And what she says is, it must be like a 20 or 30 anniversary book, or something like that. She says, people have read this book in all kinds of different ways, but no one seems to read it the way that I intended it. And it's a book about God. It starts, Dear God, and it ends with God, and nobody reads it about God. I thought, Holy, like, I had never thought of it that way either. But if you start thinking of it that way, you see that it's all laced entirely throughout the book. And she talks about how her idea of God is just like a, a kind of, like, energy and all of the living things. Uh, and that's kind of what I believe in now that like there's God in us, there's God in the air, there's God in, you know, the trees and rocks or whatever, but definitely whatever it is, it doesn't look like us.
0: Yeah. Let's hope not. <laughs> <laughs> we're, then we're really fucked. <laughs> right. Yeah. No, I, uh, there's a passage in the color purple. I, I wish I could recite it, but it has something to do with how this, you know, feeling like if you cut a tree open, I don't know, I'm going to fuck it up. I, sh- I shouldn't even go there. But I think that uh, Alice Walker is good on that subject. Yeah. You know, and it's kind of like, uh, there's something so sort of heartbreaking and funny about writing this masterpiece with this like intent. And then like, even though everybody sort of loves it, nobody understands that was your intent. <laughs> right.
1: Yeah. Even when you started, dear God. Yeah.
0: <laughs> I'm like, in the book that I'm working on, there are little sections where I'm like the narrators, you know, imagining his future grandchildren, like what he would tell them or whatever. Uh, we'll see if this makes it into the final book, but there's one line or one section where he's trying to sort of advise them on this sort of thing. And uh, the only thing you can come up with is like, everything is weirder than it seems. <laughs> yeah. And I kind of feel like that's, My stance, you know, it's like this: living in uncertainty, and you maybe humility. I don't fucking know what's going on. Nobody knows. Like, we have some, you know, we've gotten some ideas, and there have been some good teachers and some good insights. But let's like pump the brakes on having it all locked down. I think that's a bit absurd. And uh, even in my lifetime, our lifetime, this notion of hell being a real place and mortal sins, you know, for people who are not uh, fluent in Catholicism. You know, when I was a kid, it was taught to me that there were sins that you could commit for which there was no forgiveness. (laughs) And like you would burn for eternity in a fiery hell with a demon lizard named Satan who had a pitchfork. Demon lizard. Or whatever the fuck. I mean, it's like it's the most it's insane to to believe that, first of all, but especially to tell that to children. Uh, and again, you know, Brad Listy with his middle of the road intelligence as a child, like I believed my elders. I believed it too. Yeah. I mean, I had an adult telling me something. It could have been anything. I was an earnest kid who was like, okay. And, you know, I could apply this to things that go beyond religion, but, you know, like just say no culture. You know, there was a period of my youth where I was like, oh my God, like if you, uh, do any drugs, like you're dead and you know, all this stuff, uh, very impressionable and like, maybe not thinking as well or as independently as I should have been, but you know, you get to that eventually.
1: <laughs> I mean, maybe that's what we're getting out of books and right? writing is the like the trust in the mysterious or belief in the mysterious, or even just the acknowledgement that there is so much mystery and that it's not a bad thing that things can be mysterious and it's, it, we don't have to like figure out every single thing in the universe or have some kind of story that explains every single thing in the universe. You know, sometimes I think of this about science. it's like it's it's nice. I like all the science stuff, but sometimes it would be cool if it's just a weird mystery and we spent the money on like you know solving homelessness or something.
0: Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah. and I mean science too, I feel like sometimes it, they're similar. there's similar like dogmatic attitudes about it where it feels like you know it's kind of presented to us as though it's we've hit some sort of terminus. I think of this in particular with, ast- with regard to astrophysics.
1: Yeah. All the coolest stuff in astrophysics is the stuff we don't know, right? It's like dark matter and stuff. Yeah.
0: But like sometimes it's like, oh yeah, it's like the, the big bang. And I don't know, man, that's, that's a really tough one for me to swallow. I know that there's like some sort of consensus on it, but I'm just like, really? It was all like the size of a, you know, like I just, <laughs> that's way beyond, that's way beyond my little brain. Um, so anyway, man, I, I, you know, I could keep going and, and love talking with you. And uh, I know you got to go get your kids. So I'm going to let you go. I want to say, again, how happy I am for you in this new gig at Columbia, the life of New York, your kids getting to grow up as like Manhattanites. That's awesome. Yeah. And uh, kudos to you for enduring all that you've had to endure and just continuing to make books and to do the work it's inspiring and uh it's an example i think to the rest of us who have maybe had to endure less and have struggled more <laughs> to get work done so kudos to you
1: we all got our own problems yeah
0: ultimately right but uh i don't know congrats on the sense of wonder at the reception that it's gotten and, and thanks so much for taking the time to talk
1: thank you so much brad
0: okay folks there we go What do you think? That was Matthew Salesis. His new novel is called The Sense of Wonder. It's out there now from Little Brown. If you would like to find Matthew Salesis on the internet, his website is matthewsalesis.com. You can follow him on Twitter at Salesis. He's on Instagram. Check it out. Track him down. He's on the internet. One more time, the novel is called The Sense of Wonder. Go get your copy right away. The Other People podcast is listener-supported. If you want to support the show, you can do that for as little as $1 a month over at patreon.com slash pod. Tip your server. Help keep the show going. Patreon.com slash pod. Don't forget to sign up for my email newsletter. It goes out once a week. You can sign up for free at otherppl.com or at bradlisty.com. Don't forget to rate and review this show wherever you listen to this show. If you want to watch the Other People podcast, you can do that at the uh, YouTube website. Go to YouTube and search for the show by name, Other PPL. When you get there, when you find the Other People channel, hit the subscribe button. It's free. If you want to watch highlights, you can do that on Instagram. The Other People show has an Instagram page. You can also watch highlights on TikTok. The Other People podcast is now on TikTok. If you would like to follow the show on Twitter, the handle is at OtherPPL. And the show's official website, one more time, is OtherPPL.com. The email address for this program is letters at OtherPPL.com. If you have something to say to me, please send word. And last but not least, if you would like to read my novel, it's called Be Brief and Tell Them Everything. You can also listen to me read my novel to you if you buy the audiobook. So, that's an option. It's called Be Brief and Tell Them Everything. Next up on the program, I believe my guest will be Kevin Maloney. Very excited to have him on the show for the first time. One of those things I've been meaning to do. He has a new novel out called uh, The Redheaded Pilgrim, which is out on $2 radio. Stay tuned for my talk with Kevin Maloney. I have a lot of... Of good conversations in the pipeline and I have something new for this program coming up in short order I'm still sorting out the exact day but you heard it here first something's coming so stay tuned